Start with the troubled global banking sector. European markets have closed down more than 3%, spooked by a major sell-off of shares in the Swiss banking giant Credit Suisse. You've seen it, of course, on Squawk Box. The stock is down sharply in the pre-market. This follows a spike in credit default swaps that occurred last night. Takes you back, of course, to the 07-08 period and credit default swaps and how closely we watch them. Um, This is a bank that's in actually a lot better shape than it was certainly coming out of the crisis, Jim. But Sally, this is rapid how quickly this bank went into total collapse. It was just a couple of days, and it happened in the middle of a day on a Friday, which is highly unusual. I know. It's been a really stunning turn of events here, a very brief potted history of what happened. Um, this bank, it had really a one-two punch of having... Schiff, an expert on the economy, he forecast the financial crisis of 2008. What was it that you saw that others missed? You were on my show an awful lot. I appreciate it because you were one of the only people that saw this coming and had the cojones to say it. Nobody sounded the alarm louder than Peter Schiff. 
The worst is yet to come. The fundamentals are not sound. They're awful. If the fundamentals were sound, we wouldn't be having these problems. This is going to be an enormous credit crunch. The party is over for the United States. We cannot continue borrowing to live beyond our means. There's a lot of losses coming up in the future. These financials are going to get hit, and they're going to get hit hard. Don't believe When you see the stock market come down and the real estate bubble burst, all that phony wealth is going to evaporate. Why didn't anybody listen? Well, the financials, as I keep saying, are just super bargains. I particularly like uh, Merrill Lynch. Look, stay away from the financials. They're toxic. Not only didn't anybody listen to him, a lot of people actually laughed at him. Can't sell their house. The inventories are exploding all over the country. Houses are on the market for six months a year. There's no bidders. So the price right. is going to fall through the floor. You, these stimulus checks aren't going to change it. Who's laughing? Okay, well, you know... I am. Yeah. At you. Yeah. <laughs> but you're just way off base. There is nothing out there that tells us we're going to have a nice slowdown, but it's not going to be a All right, crash. let me ask you this. Um, you have been mocked on all of these financial shows going back to 2005. Oh, my gosh. You sort of saw this coming. You may know him from YouTube fame as videos of Peter Schiff calling the markets collapse way back in 2006. I've been making the rounds out there in cyberspace. Turns out he was right on the money. And now the one and only Peter Schiff has hit the fan. He saw this day coming and predicted... Subprime is a tiny, tiny it, blip. It's not <laughs> tiny, and again, it's not just subprime. You're simply wrong about that. Well, good Sunday evening and good morning wherever you are. Thank you for joining tonight's program, and that's right, there is not a spelling error in the title. That's right, we have Peter Schiff with us this evening, and as well, Cyrus Jansen is joining the panel. As you know, in the last week here, in the last couple of weeks, we have seen a collapse in the SVB Bank in the United States. Credit Suisse went to the wall, who apparently was within 24 hours of running out of money. One by one, they fall. Let's bring on the panel. Mr. Schiff, welcome to the program. What a pleasure and what an honor it is to share screens with you, Peter. Peter, um, the latest news I had was Deutsche Bank. Who or what is next, Peter? Well, you know, a lot of banks are in trouble thanks to the reckless monetary policies of central banks around the world, You know, particularly the Federal Reserve, the uh, uh, bank, uh, the European Central Bank, the Bank of England, uh, Bank of Japan, um, you know, they've kept interest rates at zero or in some cases negative for you know, a decade or so, maybe in more in some cases. Uh, they've also greatly expanded their balance sheets through quantitative easing programs where central banks have been artificially manipulating the price of uh, government debt and basically by extension all debt. And so as a result, a lot of these banks are now the owners of you know, longer-term government obligations and other obligations like mortgage-backed securities that now, in an environment where the Fed has finally decided to allow rates to rise to fight off the inflation that it created. Remember, the inflation that we're experiencing is a direct consequences of the mistakes that these central banks made. So the same mistakes that are responsible for unleashing the inflation are the ones that are responsible for the banks now being insolvent. And so as the central banks are, you know, raising rates to fight inflation, they are uh, exposing these insolvencies because now the value of the bonds that the banks own is dropping. And so when depositors want their money back, it's not there because it's been lost because the market value of these bonds isn't equal to the deposits. Now, 
if the depositors are willing to wait 10, 20, 30 years to get their money, maybe they can have it. But they don't want to wait that long. They need their money now, especially since costs are going up. Uh, you know, they need more money to pay higher prices. And because there's a way to get yield now, because all these banks, because they've already committed their deposits to these long-term obligations, they're collecting very low interest rates, maybe 1%, 2%. But depositors can take the money and put it in a money market, loaning it to governments, and get in the U.S., they can get 4 or 5%. So, you know, it's easy math to do. The banks can't raise rates because they've, they've already committed the money to lower yielding assets. So depositors want their money so they can put it someplace else to get a higher yield, but the banks don't have it. Right? So this is a problem. I was warning about this specific problem, as well as many others, over a decade ago. I knew what the end game was going to be. I, just not know, I didn't know how long the game was going to be played. I just knew how it was going to end. Yeah, those are some great insights, Peter. And thank you for, again, for joining the show. Um, it, it just, it does seem, you know, one of the interesting things that we do here on the show is we, we talk a lot about geopolitics around the world and we, we do see an interesting movement right now across the world of, of de-dollarization. A lot of countries moving away. For example, uh, I mean, there's a lot of moves between Saudi Arabia and China, certainly linking closer together. Uh, you know, the potential for the pet, the birth of the petro yuan where, you know, they're not going to be always selling, um, that, uh, their oil, you know, in United States dollars. What do you, th- what is your feeling on that? Do you think, obviously, you know, once Richard Nixon took United, the U.S. dollar off the gold standard in 1971, we had to do something, right? We had to shift and that uh, certainly went to oil. We obviously pegged, uh, the oil, you know, then Saudi Arabia to the United States dollar. I think many Americans, I mean, we feel that that's kind of our monopoly that's going to just run the tables forever. That's going to be our superpower. But do you forecast that changing anytime soon? Well, uh, the soon part, that's hard to say. And, and, and how do you define soon? Next week, yeah. next year? Hard to say. Right. But I do believe that it's going to change. Yeah. The only question is when. Um, you know, this is a privilege that the United States has enjoyed going all the way back to the 70s. It was something that... I think the Nixon administration got the Saudis to agree to uh, in exchange really for our defense of, of, of their regime. And that was done following the decision by Nixon to uh, suspend gold, redemption of U.S. currency in gold. And since the U.S. dollar was no longer backed by gold, Nixon decided, well, we need to back it by something. And he was able to back it by uh, oil in Saudi Arabia and the rest of OPEC because now you needed dollars to buy oil. So it created a use for those dollars. Uh, and so it allowed America to run trade deficits because people needed dollars to buy oil. If right. they didn't need them to buy American products and they couldn't use them to get gold, they could use them to acquire oil. But uh, I think that the world, for many different reasons, wants to move away from providing the United States with this privilege because it doesn't come you know, for free. There is a huge cost that the world bears in, in terms of a lower living standard and, and, and lower consumption because it helps you know, support American profligacy. Americans get to live beyond their means. And to make that possible, the rest of the world collectively lives beneath its means. And so there is a economic cost to uh, having the dollar as a reserve currency. But now there's another cost, a political cost, because the United States has weaponized the U.S. dollar. And we are using our... Uh, dollar status to punish uh, countries that, that, that don't do what we want them to do. Like, look what's happening with, with Russia. 
So that's sending a very powerful message to the Saudis and everybody else to de-dollarize because they are vulnerable. It's like putting your neck in a noose and then throwing the end of the rope to your your adversary and hoping they don't pull it. Mm -hmm. So I I just don't think that uh, they want to do that. And so I think there are a lot of reasons now to de-dollarize. And I think that's already in the process. And so it's just a question of time. And uh, again, I don't know how many more days, but the dollar's days are numbered as the reserve currency as are its days as the, the unit of account for uh, oil in, uh, in the OPEC nations. Um, so let me jump in for a moment. And Peter, if we can, just pull your microphone maybe just up a little bit up of your collar. That would be helpful. To, everybody okay. is really tuned in to really yeah, wanting to that. hear what yeah. you got to say. <laughs> no problem. So, um, Peter, uh, I've been watching you since 2006, 7, and 8. And wow, did you nail it on that one there. Uh, my concern is, you know, coming out of this pandemic uh, that we've seen over the last couple of years, I'm still baffled as a market player on why the markets reached their all-time highs in, uh, you know, 2021, 2022. Why are they even there? And is it true, uh, maybe I can get your opinion on this, that majority of the S&P 500 companies, there's actually really not much in them. Maybe you could help me out with understanding this a little better. Well, first of all, yeah, when you look at the S&P making new highs, it was a handful of stocks that are responsible for the new highs. So most stocks did not make new highs in 2021. But the reason you had certain stocks make new highs, and those stocks uh, were disproportionately weighted in the S&P, that was uh, you know, the, the monetary and uh, other policies during COVID. Because what happened... Uh, in COVID is the central banks flooded the economy with new money. And a lot of that new money went to buy stocks. You know, a lot of people were sitting at home with nothing to do. And all of a sudden they had a lot of money and they had nothing to spend it on. So they decided to buy stocks or you have a lot of Americans, uh, you know, with uh, brokerage accounts that are on their cell phones. And they were buying stocks. And, of course, the stocks they bought were the FANG stocks, uh, these stocks that did make new highs. They got sucked into those as well as some some other (laughs) meme stocks. You know, they also bought some cryptocurrencies and NFTs and and crap like that. Uh, But also, perversely, the, um, you know, FANG-type stocks were the ones that specifically benefited from the COVID lockdowns because their ability to make money wasn't impaired. In fact, it was enhanced. Because a lot of people were stuck at home and they couldn't spend their money, you know, uh, in the normal way that they would on uh, other services or at other brick and mortar stores, uh, all that extra cash to the extent that consumers spent it, you know, went into these uh, uh, few uh, highly speculative names that that are heavily weighted in in the S&P. And so that helped, you know, get the uh, speculation really going in these stocks. I mean, people just saw the momentum and everybody wanted, uh, you know, these shutdown, you know, lockdown plays. And so all the money was just going to these stocks. And since they were going up, the momentum attracted even more money, which kept the momentum going. And so everything kind of hit new highs in that mania. And at the time, I looked at what was going on and I said, this has got to be the end of it. This has got to be the blow off top not only for the bull market, but for the bubble. Because normally, when you have a a long bull market like the one we had, which becomes a bubble, 
it ends in some spectacular melt up, right, a blowout. And that's really what we had uh, in 2021 with the new highs in, in these FANG stocks, as well as the interest in uh, meme stocks and, and, and NFTs and, and cryptocurrencies. I think all that hit, hit ahead in 2021. And, and now, you know, the air is coming out of these bubbles. Um, before Cyrus carries on there, I just want to add to that, you know, my understanding is, you know, the downtown core in some of the U.S. biggest cities, New York, Chicago, I mean, they are absolutely obliterated. Uh, these small businesses, these shops, these bars, these restaurants, the downtown core, the work from home now, this has really, really killed, uh, you know, a lot of the, you know, center cities, uh, we'll call it central business districts business on top of that, um, one other question, and I'm, I'm firing them away at you because I'm a pleasure to have you on the screen with me here, is that um, I'm hearing a lot of people's mortgages are going to be about to reset. And uh, I'm hearing from my friends in, in Canada especially that borrowed money at quite a low rate are now fearing walking in to uh, you know extend their mortgage now. Everyone was playing the five-year rate, and, uh, well, time is ticking on that. I mean – are we going to see another housing crisis crash here? Well, it's not just housing. It's anything that was related to, to borrowed money. You know, this is the, the other side of the coin. When rates were low, there was a temporary benefit associated with that. Everybody who was a debtor uh, got a good deal. They were able to save money on their debt. Now is the flip side. Now that rates are having to adjust back up, now all the debt that was accumulated when rates were low has to be serviced and repaid when rates are higher and, and headed a lot higher. You know, in, in theory, if the central banks are really determined to reduce inflation, then interest rates have just started to go up. They have, they have a long way to rise. And, and this is going to be a problem for everybody who has borrowed money. Now, certainly in the housing market, <clears throat> probably the majority of people who buy homes can't afford to pay cash. They take on some type of mortgage. And some people in America took on a 30-year fixed-rate mortgage, and you know they refinanced it multiple times, and now they've got a really low rate. I mean, I did that myself with a house I had in Connecticut. And I had a, <clears throat> my final rate was three and three-eighths on a 30-year fix. Now, I, I have maybe about you know 26 years left on it, not really sure how many. Uh, but um, I'm very reluctant to sell that house because I don't want to <laughs> repay that mortgage. It's uh, it's very cheap money, and uh, so um, so a lot of Americans are in that situation. But there are millions of Americans who do not have a 30-year fixed-rate mortgage, who opted to save even more money by taking a five-year arm, for example, where you had an even lower rate for those five years than what was available on a 30-year fixed. But now they're going to have to pay the price for that. Because let's say their five-year time period is up this year or next year, and now the, the, the rate resets to what you know, the current market rate is. There may be some limits to how high it can go or how rapidly, but this is going to be a big shock to a lot of people uh, who are not going to be able to afford the higher mortgage, especially since the cost of everything else has gone up. So they're paying more for food. They're paying more for electricity for insurance, for maintenance, for taxes. Everything has gone up, and now their mortgage is really going up. So that's a big problem. Plus, there are a lot of people, even though they may have had a 30-year fixed-rate mortgage, they took on a second, like a, a home equity line of credit or, or some type of additional debt, 
that doesn't have a long maturity, that resets. And so Americans are going to be in trouble for that reason. And I know up in Canada, you don't have those 30-year mortgages. I think you have a much higher percentage of people who have shorter-term mortgages. And and that's going to be true all over the world. I mean, I remember I was over in Europe look when I was there on vacation looking at property. And they, in some countries, they were actually paying you to buy, borrow money and buy a house. You had a negative mortgage. Wow. You actually, you know, you actually were paid to take on the debt. Well, you know, but it was short term. It wasn't, it wasn't fixed forever. Right. And, and so people may have taken advantage of that, you know, and for the last couple of years, you know, they have had, you know, effectively no payment on their, the debt. Now, all of a sudden they have to start paying. And of course, that's a big problem, but it's, you know, corporate America indulged on all this cheap money. Where do you think all the money came from to do all these buybacks, these record share buybacks? It wasn't earnings that was driving it. It was debt. Companies were told, hey, look how cheap you can borrow money. So you might as well borrow money while it's cheap and then buy back your stocks and push up the share price. And that's what they did. But these loans are coming due. Where where are the companies going to get the money to repay the debt? I mean, are they going to sell stock? And at what price are they going to get? You know, you saw what happened when um, uh, Silicon Valley Bank tried to issue stock to cover its losses. Nobody wanted to buy it. (laughs) And the stock went to zero. So that's going to happen. And, you know, commercial real estate is is a different story than residential. There are no 30-year fixed rate mortgages in commercial. Almost all those loans are three, five-year, you know, time periods. And then the borrower has to roll over the debt. I mean, they don't have the money to repay it in most cases. So they're going to have to go and re-borrow the money. And the rates are going to be much higher. So this has always been a ticking time bomb. And I've been warning about it since the Fed lit the fuse in 2009. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's really lit now. And, and what bothers me about it is, I mean, how do we prepare for it? I mean... You know, I'm, I'm, I'm here in China right now. I haven't heard a Chinese bank go under. Uh, I've heard American banks go under. I mean, uh, Deutsche Bank on Friday uh, was hitting, uh, you know, a 12 percent down. I mean, are we going to is this just the start with the banks? I mean, I have seen absolute capital being wiped out as a shareholder. I mean, you got to be very cautious as a shareholder nowadays. If you're relying on money from the stock market, I mean, and you owned SVB Bank or even Credit Suisse, as of early as Wednesday morning, you're you're gone. I mean, yeah. they don't talk about the equity loss here on people. And how many more of these uh, phantom companies are out there, phantom banks? Peter, help us with this. Well, I, there's a lot of them out there. I mean, that's why I've pretty much avoided the entire sector. If you look at the funds that we manage um, on behalf of clients or through our mutual funds, uh, we haven't really had any financials. We've underweighted them you know, dramatically. There's something like 20% of the benchmark or the index and you know we basically don't own them and this is why i mean i I've, I've avoided them like the plague because i knew that they they had this disease now for a while that worked against me because while i wasn't buying the banks and everybody else was you know the prices were going up and then in particular people kept saying well when the interest rates finally go up they're going to be it's going to be good for the banks because they're going to earn more money on interest. And I kept saying, no, 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 it's going to be a disaster for the banks because it's going to destroy the value of their assets. You know, I I talked about it specifically, why rising rates were going to be bad for the financials. And since I always knew rates would eventually rise, I didn't buy them. 
And so for years, my funds were underperforming. And as a result of last year, they're now at the top. They're number one. I mean, I've been getting awards uh, from Lipper gave me an award for the best fund of uh, 2023. I got number one from Mooney's, uh, Morningstar uh, uh, from uh, U.S. News World Report came out with a special piece. They, they ranked uh, the top 60 international funds out of like 350. And I had number one and number three. And I only had two funds in the category. And I got one and three. Goldman Sachs somehow shoehorned in between me. One of their funds made it to, to number two. But I think I'm going to beat that fund uh, with both my funds this year. That's my opinion as uh, my forecasts continue to, to prove correct. I mean, they were early. And because they were so early, a lot of people dismissed them as being wrong. No, they were just that prescient because I was able to sell, tell rather, from such an early point where this was headed because I understand the consequences of the monetary policy mistakes that the Fed and other central banks were making. Whereas most people in my industry, asset management or even professional economists, other forecasters, they don't even understand yet that the Fed made a mistake. So if they don't know that the central banks got it wrong, then how would they know what the consequences would be? And so that's why I was able to see it so early. And the reason that so many people are still so confused by this and so many in the financial media are acting as if this is a surprise, like, you know, this came out of left field and nobody could have seen it coming is because they still don't get it. And they said the same things in 2008 or after 2008 that nobody could have seen this coming. This was a black swan. This was, you know, something no one could have forecast. It was a hundred year flood. And I was like, hey, wait a minute. No, no, I did forecast it. I did see it coming. I warned about it for years. Just nobody listened. In fact, not only did people not listen, they actually laughed at what I had to say. You know, now people are talking about how all those problems were obvious. No, they weren't. They were obvious to me. But even when I pointed out the obvious to other people, they still didn't get it. And the same people don't get what's happening today. They keep saying this is not like 2008. In a sense, they're right because it's much worse than 2008. But, but, but they're making the comment to dismiss this. In fact, nobody wants to call this a financial crisis. But that's exactly what it is. This is a financial crisis. Like, you know, it, a financial crisis has to do with banks. That's what happened in 2008. You had some banks failing because they own bad debt. Well, what do you think is going on right now? And in fact, more banks are failing even quicker now than back then. Yeah, it's quick. Uh, I mean, the, you know, seeing that. I'm going to pass this over to Cyrus now. Cyrus, you have quite a bit of uh, stuff <laughs> that you want answered from Peter. Go ahead. Well, yeah. I mean, well, I think that's fantastic insights, Peter. I really appreciate it. And just to kind of give some perspective to everybody and to kind of, you know, just to confirm what Peter's saying. I mean, it's interesting. I lived in Canada for the last five years and like some of, we have some Canadians in the chat here. And uh, it is interesting because uh, Canada does not offer that, that fixed uh, mortgage. You know, you don't, it's impossible to get a 30 year fixed mortgage. I have a good friend of mine that bought a house and, uh, very happy because he got a, he, you know, he's quite, he's close friends with a bank manager. So he got the best available rate. He's locked that in for five years, but as you know, I think he's about two and a half years in and then that, then that expires, you know, and then it goes right to whatever that market is. So he's, he's already anticipating, you know, I'm going to have a good mortgage payment for the next two years, but you know, the chickens are going to come home to roost in two years and you know, that rate's going to be much, much higher. So we have to anticipate that. Another interesting thing I'm here in Las Vegas, Nevada, and you know, in our neighborhood, we, we, uh, have actually seen a tremendous amount of it's a new neighborhood, new build, and we've seen a lot of people that were buying houses last year 
They didn't get their finances in order. They didn't lock down that rate. And we've seen so many houses just hit the market because they just can't afford the mortgage payments. You know, the, yeah. you know what they started on construction last year. Now it's like, okay, it's time to close. We didn't get that. We didn't lock in that 30 year fixed rate. Well, now they, now they can't afford that mortgage and they've had to just put the house on a, on a fire sale. Yeah. Um, I mean, we've seen, we've seen prices just crash. I mean, house one for 1.6. Okay. Now it's 1.3. Wow. Yeah. I mean, like, you know, we're just taking That's... 300K right off the bat and they're just trying to dump, dump, dump as fast as possible to get out of here. Uh, yeah, and it's, that's... It's... That's an important point that I was making for years yeah. with respect to what would happen when rates ultimately had to normalize. Yeah. And, and, and you have, you know, some people like your buddy who still has two or three years left right. on his, you know, super low rate. So as long as he doesn't want to sell his house or doesn't want to, you know, use it as collateral for some other loan. Yeah, yeah, he can enjoy those low payments for another couple of years. And what he should be doing is is saving money so that he has the money to make the higher payments. Right. But if he decides that he doesn't want to live in that house anymore, that he wants to sell it for some reason, the pool of potential buyers don't have access to that low rate. They now have to borrow money at the market rate. And so if your ability to buy is a function of the monthly payments on your mortgage, the minute the mortgage rates are high, the real estate price has to fall. It's just like a bond, right? A right. mortgage, you know, real estate is almost like a bond in the sense that it moves opposite with interest rates. So bond prices went up when interest rates were low. That's why all these banks have lost so much money because interest rates went up and the value of their bonds went down. Well, that's what's happening with real estate in a higher rate environment, if you have to pay more to borrow money to buy a house, then you have to pay less for the house. You know, yeah. the, the mortgage rate helps determine the demand for housing. And Absolutely. as the rate goes up, the demand goes down. People still want to live in a house, but you know, they, they can't afford to pay as much money. So a lot of people that got these low rates, if they bought their home during the time period where those rates were low, they paid a very high price. The people who are in better shape are the people who already owned a home before the prices went way up, but had a mortgage, and then they refinanced the mortgage at the lower rates. I don't know to what degree that went on in, in Canada, but that went on a lot in the U.S. But the flip side of that is those mortgage-backed securities are out there owned by somebody. So the gain for the borrower is the loss for the lender. I talk about that a lot with my own mortgage. So if I've got this three and three eighths mortgage, which is you know up for the next 25, 26 years, Bank of America owns that mortgage. They're going to be losing money on that mortgage for 25 years. I mean, they, yeah. they don't want that mortgage anymore. I mean, what good is it? I'm paying yeah. them three and three eighths. You know, <laughs> they they could get more than that if they just parked their money with the Fed. Right. And if they went to sell my mortgage, maybe they'd be able to get 70 cents for it, 65 cents. I don't know. But now they can just take that crappy mortgage and hand it to the Federal Reserve and get back a dollar, even though it's only worth 70 cents. And that's obviously what's going to happen. And that's why the Fed's balance sheet is going to balloon and why inflation is going up, not down, because they have to print money in order to get a Bank of America out of jail. But, you know, so all the, the money that all the borrowers are making is, is a function of what everybody else is losing. And I was pointing this out for 10 years, talking about, the other side of the savings. Everybody wanted to focus on how great this was 
that everybody could refinance their mortgages at these super low rates. And I kept saying, but what happens to the lenders when rates go up? This is a financial crisis in the making. And of course, now the crisis that I warned about for a decade is upon us. Yeah. Peter, I want to, you know, we focus a lot on uh, U.S.-China relations, and, and I have an interesting take here because, you know, a lot of times, you know, and geopolitically, I mean, obviously the big story right now is there is the United States and China are moving moving towards a conflict, and most likely the conflict is going to be involving Taiwan. And, you know, there's a lot of talk about a military conflict and things like that, but I want to talk about a potential economic uh, conflict. Like, what if we were in an economic Cold War between the United States and China, which is actually a very interesting scenario to think about and to discuss because, I mean, despite the tensions and the decline in the United States-China relationship, last year, I think the United States bought $547 billion worth of products from China and we find ourselves in a very interesting catch-22. We want to decouple. Everything is decoupled, decoupled from China. Uh, I mean, I don't see how we can possibly do that. That's one of the messages that I consistently preach on this channel is is how vital China is to the success of the American economy and just our way of life here in America. I mean, everything I mean, everything that we're recording with today all comes from China. I mean, we really rely heavily on China. Um, but, I mean, what about if we had an economic kind of Cold War. How do you see that positioning, you know, between the United States and China? What are your thoughts on, on that? Well, I mean, we're not in a position to fight the war. We're, we're not even armed, so we would lose. <laughs> uh, you know, the, the operative word there is bought, right? You talk about how much we buy from China. Well, you know, buying implies paying, right? If you bought something, then you paid for it. But we haven't really paid for anything that we, we get from China, right? Because how do we so how do we pay because the chinese send us actual stuff right real products like you know some of the consumer electronics that you're using in your studio there right, right. so where did they get these products you know did they just you know wave a wand and they just magically appeared no they they needed to devote actual scarce resources that could have been used for something else they had to take land labor and capital and and use it to produce those goods, which they then shipped over to the United States. And then, of course, they had to pay the cost of shipping them over there. And then they had to pay the cost of bringing the ships back empty because there's nothing that we put on there. So they have to come all the way back empty so they can get loaded up again with more stuff. Right. So the Chinese are expending a lot of resources, labor, capital, land, you know, to produce these products and ship them over to the United States. And what are we shipping back to China? Right. What are they getting in exchange for all that hard work and all those resources are paper, right? Dollars, Federal Reserve notes. Right. Well, where they came from? Well, they came out of thin air. We just conjured them into existence at the Fed, right? At the click of a button, whatever. We don't even have to use paper and ink anymore. We just create it magically, you know, in cyberspace. And now uh, we send that over there, right? Electronically. That's why we don't need a ship because it's just nothing. Right. And so then what do the Chinese do? With these dollars, well, they lend them right back to us. <laughs> they buy treasuries, they buy mortgage-backed securities, and so what? You know, what did we give up? Nothing. We got all this stuff, and we had we didn't have to do any work. We didn't have to expend any resources uh, to pay for it. On the other hand, the Chinese had to use up all these resources to make stuff, and they got nothing to show for it. And and so this is not a symbiotic relationship. I think this is parasitic. You know, I think the United States is gaining at the expense of the Chinese and everybody else who is participating 
in this in this game. But I think what will eventually happen when the Chinese come to their senses, you know, and they eventually will. I mean, you can't expect them to do something this stupid indefinitely. I mean, they're 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 not dumb. They're you know they'll figure it out if they haven't already figured it out. And they're going to want to end this parasitic relationship. And so what would happen then? Because right? everybody thinks, well, China would be in a lot of trouble if you know, they couldn't ship all their stuff to America. It's like, right. no, the Chinese would, would all of a sudden be in a much better position because they could take those exact same goods that they're shipping to us and the Chinese can buy them, use them themselves. Chinese workers could actually enjoy the fruits of their labor. And if they don't want the identical products that are being manufactured for us, well, they could use that capacity and that labor to do something that they do want instead of doing something that we want, right? So they they have the resources. They have the infrastructure. uh, They have all the necessary accoutrements to wealth and to increasing their standard of living. We don't. Because in the relationship where the U.S. and China no longer trade with one another, the Chinese keep all their stuff and they get to enjoy it. And we no longer have access to that stuff. So there's, we have a huge change. So now the Chinese get more stuff to consume. We get less. So what happens in America? Prices skyrocket. You, know, you go over to Walmart and all the shelves are empty. There's just nothing there to buy. You know? Right. Hey, and we've, Amazon, and we've actually seen that a little bit, right? We've already seen that a little bit, you know, with the COVID and, and, you yeah, know, when we, see, when we see these trade, you know, these trade issues, uh, these supply chain issues, right? I mean, we've had, yeah. we've experienced that already. We've already had a little preview of what, yeah. what that would look like. So basically we keep all of our paper money and they keep all their stuff. And so they get lower prices and more stuff. We get much higher prices and less stuff. All we have, our inflation <laughs> stays here. We can't export our inflation to China anymore. It's, it's, it stays in the United States, and we have to suffer the full consequences of that money printing. And, of course, there's going to be a big snowball effect because we have an entire economy built around the distribution of stuff that we get for free from the Chinese and everybody else. So if Walmart no longer has anything to sell, well, Walmart can't be in business, or at least not at the scale that it is now. So it has to start cutting back. It has to start laying off workers, right? The entire service sector economy collapses if it no longer has any goods to sell, right? We're, we're just a distribution machine for the stuff that everybody else makes. Well, if we can no longer import that stuff, then we don't need to distribute it anymore. And so the, the recession that would accompany, uh, you know, this cessation of, of this relationship, I mean, would be a catastrophic. Yeah, let me jump in here, Peter. You know, I get this question a lot of times on a lot of my videos. I make a lot of videos on China, of course. And uh, I just want to once again welcome you to my audience at Reportify Media. The question always comes around and it says, listen, Alex, uh, China could not survive if America stops buying goods from them. That's the first one. And uh, I need you to answer that one. And then the second one is is Cyrus and I are going to pull up a, a couple of slides on derivatives. We need you to kind of help us out on that one. So the first one, first question over to you is it always comes to me, and I'm always looking at a way to defend this when they say, you know, hey, Alex, uh, the moment that uh, North America stops ordering anything from you uh, from China or over there, uh, the lights are going to go out for China, and it's game over. Yeah, well, help first us of all, out. again, the word is buy. We're not buying. 
you know, if anything, they're vendor financing. So they're loaning us money to buy their stuff, even though we can't pay back any of the money we've already borrowed to buy the stuff that we bought, yet they keep loaning us more. Uh, so uh, the sooner they stop throwing good money after bad, the better. Because again, the factories that the Chinese have aren't going to go away. The, the labor, the, the skilled workforce, all of the supply chains, all the stuff that has been built up, all that real investment will remain in China if they stop uh, shipping stuff to us. So doesn't that stuff have value? I mean, yeah. it, it, that, that, and look, if they don't sell to us, they can sell to somebody else. It's not like Americans are unique in that we want things. The rest of the world wants stuff. So in theory, they could sell to the next highest bidder that Americans were able to outbid. Uh, but I think more likely more of their production will be consumed domestically. And so uh, they won't export it. And you have to remember a key economic point. Export is not a, a, an ends in and of itself. Exporting is a means to an ends. Why do countries export? To gain from comparative advantage. If you produce something very efficiently, you want to produce more than you need so that you can export it, and then you can use your earnings to import something else that maybe you aren't as efficient in producing. And as a result, you end up with more goods to consume uh, because of exports. But if you're simply exporting for the sake of exporting, then you're wasting uh, your resources. It doesn't make any sense. And that's what the Chinese are doing because all they're getting in exchange for their products is our paper. And the only reason the paper doesn't crash is because they keep buying it. And, and they keep loaning it back to us. Uh, so, no, I mean, China does not need us at all. Uh, we need them. And, and that's what people just don't seem to get, right? Because it's not like we can produce the stuff that the Chinese are producing. Because if we could, we would be doing it right now. We yeah. can't. Yeah, now, that's, that is so could, true. Could, could we eventually do it? Yes, but it's going to take years, if not decades, of investment. And in order to do that, we have to reduce our consumption because you can't spend and invest the same money. So it's one or the other. You either consume it or you save it and invest it. And so we haven't had to save and invest because the Chinese have been doing it for us. But now we don't have you know anything to show for it. So if we want to rebuild what we lost, because at one time, you know, all the stuff that is in your studio, all that consumer electronics, if you were able to have, you know, do this in the 1940s, 1950s, everything would have been made here. We made all that stuff yeah. ourselves, and we exported it. Right? So, that, but we don't do that anymore right. because we've relied on the rest of the world to do it for us, and we've used the dollar's reserve status to get away with it. But if we have to go back to a, 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 a independent, self-sufficient uh, industrial economy again, and we have to start producing stuff, that's going to take a long time. And during the interim there's going to be a huge recession because yeah. the phony economy has to collapse. Now, the good thing is, you know, there have been a lot of improvements since the 1940s, you know, in uh, uh, you know, technology that would make a return to industrialization uh, more e easier, more efficient. I mean, even what's happening now with uh, artificial intelligence. I mean, that has the potential to help make America more productive. Of course, it's the same is true for the rest of the world, but it's not going to happen overnight. 
Um, and, and it's going to require, in order for this to happen, a, a big reduction in government. Because government is going to have to cut spending dramatically in order to relieve the domestic economy of the burden of paying for all that government because we can't pay for all that government and then reindustrialize our economy at the same time. Right. You know, so we have to lighten the burden on the private sector because it has a, a, a Herculean, Herculean task in front of it. Uh, and it's going to be impossible if it's also burdened uh, by, by high taxes and high regulation. I mean, that is something that would not have a big cost to the government, but would have a huge benefit to the country which would be repealing a lot of rules and regulation that unnecessarily inhibit our productivity. And in fact, those rules and regulations are part of the reason that we outsource everything to China in the first place. Yeah. Well, I think one of the other things, Peter, that's amazing, I mean, being back here in the United States, um, just one last point, Alex, before we go to this one, is, is quite interesting. Is, is just when, we, when you look at workers, I mean, we, we simply can't, we can't hire workers to work in a restaurant. I mean, you know, so, I mean, it, and it's, it's, it's amazing because we sometimes get comments like, you know, we don't need, you know, we don't, you know, Apple doesn't need China. Just bring back the Apple factories. We can manufacture our iPhone, you know, here in the United States. I'm like, no, you know what? You know, we definitely can. I mean, we, we certainly have the technology and the process to do that. Your iPhone's going to cost you five to six thousand dollars. I mean, so as long as you're willing to, you know, to pay five times more for your iPhone, you know, let's pony up. Let's go for it. But, you know, the problem no, is nobody is, will. And no, in, no, fact, yeah. in fact, one of the reasons people were able to buy the iPhones at all, even to pay a thousand dollars for an iPhone or twelve hundred was because of the cheap financing. Yeah. Right. That the cell phone companies were fronting the money. Well, why were they doing that? Because money was so cheap, they were able right. to do it. But yeah. as interest rates rise, all these cell phone carriers can't afford to uh, offer this kind of financing. And so that means that people that have iPhone 14s, they're not going to be lining up for iPhone 15 right. <laughs> because they're not going to be able to get those sweetheart financing terms. Right. So people are going to stick with their phones a lot longer. And of course, why not? I mean, there's nothing wrong. I mean, even if you're still using the iPhone 11 or whatever, 10, they still work good. Yeah, you know, right. it's not like, you know, you, you, you need to get the newest. But when the cell phone companies were just giving them to you for nothing, well, just yeah. here, just take it. You know, we'll, you know, you know, no interest and we'll spread the payments out uh, when they can't do that anymore. So, yeah, these companies are in a lot of trouble. And if they had a manufacturer here, they'd be in even worse trouble. And, of course, if the iPhone was manufactured here and it went up in price by three or four fold, then people wouldn't even buy iPhones. They, they would just buy uh, you know, the, the uh, phones from a different manufacturer that wasn't manufacturing in the United States because the product would be far more competitive. They'd probably go to Xiaomi, you know, one of the yeah, leading you know, Chinese Samsung, ones. <laughs> Samsung would just, you know, would love it to see a, the Apple try to produce everything here. You know? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I, I, we have had a lot of questions about Chinese banks. You know, what is the status of Chinese banks and this? Alex, go to the next slide and you go ahead and, uh, you know, open up sure. this question. And, and just to jump into that, you know, there's a lot of wealth being lost in, you know, depreciating assets, cars and stuff like that. I've seen it. Uh, I did a little calculation on how much my sister as a school teacher has traded in her car, I think, you know, five or six times over the last uh, 12 to 15 years and how much wealth is done on that. I mean, the biggest promoters, I mean, some of these car manufacturers that promote these products, as Peter was saying, with cheap financing, I mean, we are getting promoted by Janet Yellen as we speak. So here's a couple of slides that I would like to bring up on the screen here. Peter, maybe you can help us out with this one. So this first one here is the comparison of the top four banks in the U.S. to China in trillions of dollars. 
The one uh, on the, uh, I guess it would be the right-hand side, is the USA and China, and this is derivatives. Uh, maybe you can uh, explain this one to Peter Cyrus. Well, I'd like to get Peter's analysis on this because when we look at like uh, when we look at the assets, I mean, we're looking at assets. Of, so we're looking at that on, this, on the left. Uh, it appears that the Chinese banks, you know, there's the top four banks in both the U.S. and China. So we've got a lot more assets inside these, you know, Chinese banks. And then on the right, you know, is these the United States owns a, a lot more of these derivatives. <laughs> uh, I mean, this is this is just our, just our general question. You know, I mean, we've obviously seen, you know, United States banks collapse. Deutsche Bank is the is is really. I'd say next on the chopping block, but I mean, we, we, there's a lot of speculation over that. I mean, one of the things we know is there's never one cockroach, right? Once you know, you see one cockroach in the kitchen at night, you know, it's never one. There's always a bit more uh, underneath yeah. once you start looking at that. So, I mean, I mean, I think it's it's safe to ask, you know, what about Chinese banks? Are they better? Are they better positioned? I mean, what is your feeling on that? I mean, are are we really looking at an entire global crisis here? That you know, Canadian banks and African and Asian and Every bank is is really at a risk right now. What is your what are your thoughts? Yeah, Peter? well, first of all, on the cockroaches, sure. I mean, especially <laughs> when they're all eating the same food. You know, I, yeah. I was saying the same thing in uh, 2007 when the subprime problems arose, and the Fed and everybody else was saying, "Well, it's contained to subprime, right? It's somehow right. it's unique to these subprime markets." And my point was, no, it's not unique to subprime. Subprime is the weakest link in the chain. I mean, that was the craziest part of the mortgage market. And so it makes sense that it would buckle first. But I said, this is just the tip of an iceberg, that there, you know, there are problems throughout the entire mortgage market, not just in the most extreme example. And now the same thing is happening again when you have the failure of Silicon Valley Bank, and they're like, oh, well, this is just a unique situation to Silicon Valley Bank. It's because, you know, it has so many uh, tech customers or crypto, and, you know, it had such a high percentage of the deposits were, were uninsured. All that means is that it was the weak link in the chain, right? It, it, so the problem now is no more contained to a handful of banks than the mortgage crisis was contained to subprime. It's just the, the initial impetus of everybody is to dismiss it. We don't have to worry about some huge crisis. This is an isolated event. Everything <laughs> is fine. And again, they're as wrong now as they were then. I mean, it was similar to the way they greeted, uh, you know, inflation rearing its head, finally. Uh, oh, no, it's transitory. We don't have to worry about it. I mean, BS. They, they, they always want to dismiss a problem the minute it shows up. And they want to minimize its significance. And maybe they hope that by doing that, you know, they can wish the problem away by denying it exists. And so maybe they're doing the same thing again. But with respect to your second question about the Chinese banks, look, I, I don't own any Chinese banks. Uh, in fact, I don't really own banks anywhere in, in Asia. I don't own them in Hong Kong. I mean, I, I just have avoided the entire sector because I know that it's the sector that the governments have the most screwed up. Right. <laughs> because of what they've done with interest rates, right? Banks are a party to all this, right? And so banks are more vulnerable to problems based on the way their business models developed over the years in this artificial rate environment. So they're, they're just disasters. Now, to the extent that the banks in China may have you know, be smaller disasters than the banks in the United States or Europe. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure that's the case because rates in Europe and the U.S. were always lower than they were in China. So they, they weren't quite as low, but they were lower than they should have been. Right. And so mistakes were clearly made 
all around the world. Everywhere that rates were too low, uh, mistakes were made because interest rates need to reflect the free market. They need to reflect the supply of legitimate savings and the demand for credit. And the market has to discover a, a price that balances everything and is at equilibrium. Just like we need the market to discover the price of everything else, whether it's the price of oil, the price of bread, you know, the price of labor. Because whenever the government comes in and, and tries to fix a price that is different than the, the price that the market would discover, it's going to create a problem. Right? So if they put a price cap on something, if they say we don't want oil prices to be above a certain level and they put a price cap, well, the result's going to be a shortage of oil. Right? Too many people are going to want to buy it. Not enough people are going to want to produce it. You're going to get a shortage. And now what are you going to do? Ration, price control. You know, all kinds of stuff happens when the government sets the price too low. The other hand, they could set it too high, like a minimum wage. The government says, oh, we don't like the wage in the market. We're going to set a higher minimum wage. Well, that means you have a surplus of workers. You have unemployment. Employers don't want to pay the higher wage, Mm -hmm. but more people want to earn it. And so the market doesn't clear. Well, the same thing happens with interest rates. If the government says, we don't like the market rate of interest, we want to fix the interest rate at a lower rate than what the market would determine, well, what happens? Well, you get a shortage of savings, you get a surplus of debt, and you get problems in the economy. And particularly, you get problems in the banks. So I don't own the banks. I, I think there's trouble. Uh, but you know, maybe at some point, I'll start looking at them if I think they get cheap enough, because I think all the bad news is out. Right. And and then, you know, maybe there's some good bargains in some of these banks. Now, I think the Chinese economy is in better shape to weather this storm mm-hmm. um, uh, than, than, let's say, the U.S. Uh, or, or Europe, uh, in, for that matter. So I think the Chinese economy overall won't be as negatively impacted uh, by the problems in their banks as, let's say, the U.S. would be uh, with our banks, especially if in the process we lose the dollar as the reserve currency. Right. Peter, they brought up a good point because I think, you know, in the United States with our politicians, they necessarily can't make the best decision for the economy or or for the country because I think they're always concerned with re-election. Isn't that right? Yeah. I mean, they're always concerned about, number one goal for every politician in America is how do I get re-elected? So I think when you look at, for example, this crisis that the Fed has created, uh, obviously, there's some steps that need to be taken, but I think many U.S. politicians are very reluctant to take those steps. This is an interesting thought. Does that give China an advantage, considering it is a one-party state, and obviously there's no worrying about being reelected? Uh, they can just simply move quickly. I mean, if they need to address a situation, it doesn't really matter what the public thinks. Like, we're going to make this decision, and you know, this is what's best for the economy. Would you? What was your thoughts on that? Yeah, you know, you know, it's kind of ironic, and most people don't get this. But that is the downside of democracy. And, you know, why a democracy is not a, a, a good form of government. I mean, it's, it's, it's not what we're supposed to have in the United States. It was not the intention of the founders, uh, the founding fathers, to establish America as a democracy. In fact, it was specifically established to prevent democracy <laughs> from, from rearing its head. We, we were created as a republic. And the founders were very familiar with the demise of democracies. They were very educated, unlike the people who are currently in Congress. They, they understood the dangers of government inherent 
in democracy. And so we, we've created a republic. But over the years, all of the safeguards that have been built into the Constitution by the founders have basically, you know, uh, been eradicated and the courts no longer really enforce the Constitution as it was meant to be applied to the government. And so we are more of the very democracy that the founders feared would ultimately be our, our demise. And those fears are, 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 are coming true because the problem with this democracy, as you said, is that decisions are made based on their political appeal, not based on their economic viability. So whatever gets done is going to be done based on how it impacts the elected representatives' prospects for the next election, which in America is every two years, right? The House of Representatives has to face the electorate every two years. And so they do not want to do something that will hurt in the short run. Right? They don't, they're not willing to swallow bitter-tasting medicine, even yeah. if it will cure the disease, because when the voters taste the medicine, they're going to vote for somebody else. Right? Exactly. You can't say, look, you know, you got to suck it up, because in five years you're going to be better off. The voters are like, no, no, because the guy running against that guy is going to make all these commercials exactly. about you know, how bad this stuff is. Like, oh, you're cutting Social Security. Oh, you're throwing Grandma you know, over a cliff. <laughs> You know, so they, they're not going to cut government spending. They're not going to do the right thing in a democracy. A democracy guarantees that they're going to do the wrong thing because yeah. what's good politics is bad economics and what's bad economics is good politics. So, you know, this is where we're stuck. Whereas the Chinese don't have that problem. The Chinese leaders can actually think about the long term and what's best uh, for Chinese and they can tell them to swallow the bitter tasting medicine because they got no choice. They got to swallow it. <laughs> yeah, so, absolutely. And, you know, it's again, it's like it's like, you know, weightlifting, you know, no pain, no gain. Right. Yeah. Um, uh, the U.S. politicians are not willing to ask the voters to have any pain, whereas the Chinese politicians can let the voters know there's going to be some pain, but you're going to get all this long term gain. Right. You know, not that I'm an advocate of communism. You know, far from it. I would prefer a republic. You know, I, yeah. you know I, and you know, I even I would prefer a monarchy to a democracy. You know, with a constitution that limited the the power of the monarch. I think I think the UK was better off when they were more of a monarchy, not just in a in a figurative sense, right. uh, but literally when you know when there was a king there, they they were a much more powerful nation. Uh, you know, under the monarchy than they are under democracy, because there's no way any monarch. Uh, would have ever taxed the British to the extent that they're taxing themselves. I mean, it never would have happened. I mean, no king could get away with what, you know, democracies are doing, the governments are doing now under the guise of, of democracy. You know, there would have been revolution. Um, but so in that respect, though, given the, 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 the Chinese position, yes, they are much better able to withstand this, much better to win a, a trade war or economic war, uh, because they they can take the pain, not that their pain would be anywhere near as bad as mm. um, as the pain that we would have to actually endure in the United States. Plus, you know, the Chinese, they, yeah, they're communist in that it's a communist party, right? But they do not embrace the communist ideology, at least not anymore, because right. there is a lot more free market capitalism taking place on the streets of Beijing than in any major U.S. city. You know, I mean, if you are an entrepreneur 
you're a young person and you're in China and you want to start a business, it's easier to do that in China than it is in the United States. You have fewer regulations to deal with, lower taxes. And so, you know, there's more freedom there on that respect. Now, in totality, yeah, you know, there's a lot of things that, you know, where they're lacking. Um, but the leaders know that Karl Marx was wrong, <laughs> that, that it's not from each according to his ability to each according to his need, that we need the, 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 the dynamics of free enterprise, of capitalism, that that's where wealth comes from. Uh, and, you know, and that's why the Chinese enjoy the living standard that they do. I mean, if they were still, you know, operating under the, the principles, you know, of Karl Marx, you know, from Mao and all that, and, you know, they would be nothing. There would be no industry in China. There would be no prosperity in China. For sure. You know, For they sure. gave all that up because they realized it didn't work. You know, yeah. some countries haven't figured that outlet, you know, like North Korea or Cuba. Right. I mean, so they're not experiencing this economic boom. You know, we don't have a huge trade uh, deficit with Cuba. Right. Because they actually are communist in Cuba. So they can't make anything. Right. Right. You know, we never um, we never had a trade deficit with the Soviet Union. Why? Because the Soviet Union was communist until it collapsed. And because absolutely. it was communist, they didn't make anything. Exactly. Alex, what's your, Alex, you got one last question here, I think. Actually, too, you know, when people found out that Peter was coming on the show, they, they hammered my inbox and they just said, okay, fire away. Here's a friend of ours, a local friend of ours here, Daniel Dumbrell. And Peter, I know your take on this, but I, I want to hear uh, you answer Daniel's uh, question here. Daniel says the following, That's a long uh, and he and and he fall. Well, I'll, I'll read it out to you. And he follows uh, he follows you quite quite closely. He says, um, "I know you've been a longtime critic of cryptocurrency. Indeed, the ecosystem is flooded with bad actors, and the price is too volatile. But if we look at the increased distrust in the governments and the banks, and consider the difficulty of taking physical custody of gold bars could you ever see a place for a decentralized store of value that would easily allow for personal digital custody and that was somewhat isolated from any specific national currency even if it ended up being something other than bitcoin what would it take for you to see the merit in the idea of a digital currency of the future i know well, it's a long question <laughs> the, the operative word there is store of value Right. Could there be a digital store of value that can replace uh, a non-digital store of value, such as, let's say, gold? Right. Um, well, I have to see what actual value is being stored, you know, because when it comes to Bitcoin, I don't see any value there because I don't see that Bitcoin has any properties that um, that, that give it that value. Let, you know, so you can't store what you don't have. I understand uh, all the decentralized part and all that, but I just don't see the value that's unique to Bitcoin uh, when there are so many other decentralized uh, cryptos out there that also have no actual uh, utility or intrinsic value. Um, you know, it's, you know, yes, people are losing trust in governments and their fiat currencies, but does that mean they're going to put their trust into uh, a digital equivalent of a fiat currency. I mean, yes, the fiat currencies derive their value because the governments have decreed them to be valuable. But ultimately, it's not the government decree that makes fiat currencies value valuable. It's the faith that the public has in that decree, right? Because once you lose confidence, it's gone. Look, the Zimbabwe dollar 
is still the currency of Zimbabwe. And all the government laws making it legal tender doesn't stop it from collapsing. You know, and the same thing with the, 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 Deutsche, the, the Reichsmark in, in the Weimar Republic. It doesn't matter. Right? It's once the confidence goes, then the currency is gone. Right? It's, it's obliterated. And so Bitcoin, even though it's not you know, deriving value from a legal tender status, status, which actually makes it worse than a regular fiat currency, all of its value comes from trust. It comes mm. from trust that other people are going to ascribe value to Bitcoin and are going to want to buy it, right? But what if that doesn't happen? What if people lose faith in Bitcoin? Um, be either because something else better comes along, right? Just like, you know, look at all the problems now. Oh, Google's getting in trouble because maybe people are going to search through uh, Microsoft or, you know, uh, a, a Bing with their chat, uh, with their AI or, you know, mm-hmm. and where did Microsoft come from? I mean, where did Google come from? But because before that, People were using Yahoo or other search engines that already went out of business because something better came along. So you have no idea why people may lose confidence in Bitcoin over the years, or maybe just the whole crypto fad is a fad and everybody loses interest. But here's my whole take on it is I do see value in a digital representation of money that can be uh, more easily utilized in commerce that could be a better unit of account, a better medium of exchange, right, than a physical bar of gold, right? Mm-hmm. Just like when we use gold as money originally, and gold has been money for a long time because of how well it works as money and how it's better than other commodities that could also be used as money and have been used in money historically as money. But one of the things that made gold a better money until it was corrupted by government was the ability to use gold as backing for currency because that increased the utility of gold when you can store gold in a depository, whether it's a bank or a goldsmith, and issue notes that are redeemable in that gold and which derive their value from that gold but can then be utilized in commerce instead of gold, as a substitute for the gold. So instead of having to go and get my gold and giving you, giving it to you or shave off a little bit of my gold from a bar, I, we could just have notes, paper, and we could exchange that instead of the gold because we know the gold's there and we can get it whenever mm-hmm. we want. So that was an improvement for gold. Mm-hmm. Blockchain, right, the internet, takes it to a much greater degree because now that bar can sit in a vault somewhere And instead of issuing paper currency that represents ownership of that gold, I can issue a digital currency. And we can, you know, use a blockchain to authenticate and validate all of the the transactions, right? So now I can do everything that Bitcoin promises but can't deliver on with a cryptocurrency fully backed by and redeemable in gold. Because I can take a gram of gold, tokenize it, put it on a blockchain, and now everybody can, can, can uh, transact commerce in it. In fact, hmm. we don't even need silver or copper or nickel anymore because I could buy a pack of chewing gum and pay for it in gold because I can pay for it with uh, the digital currency and each, each unit can be you know, you know, divided you know, into, into a fraction of a gram so that I can do all commerce. And the difference between that and Bitcoin is that 
it's actually stable enough to be used as a medium of exchange, and it actually has value to store. It has all the value of the gold that is backing up the crypto. Whereas, you know, Bitcoin has nothing backing it up other than hype, other than faith. Hmm. Right? It's, you know, but, you know, it's a Ponzi, it's a pyramid, so it, it eventually has to collapse. So it, everything that people claim they want with Bitcoin, gold can do all that. The only thing that gold can't do is you have to have a third party involved that you trust to store that gold. But that has always been the case. Ever since the creation of uh, currency, there has always been a third party that has been trusted. And because of competition, because nobody has a monopoly on being that third party, the third parties that want to be the custodians of the gold and issue the, the, the cryptocurrencies that are backed by that gold, they compete with one another based on that trust, based on that confidence. And so the free market will make sure that the most trustworthy entities are the most successful custodians because it's those currencies that merchants are going to want to get paid in that people are going to want to save. And once you build up a reputation for being a, you know, a trustworthy custodian of gold, you don't want to lose that. That reputation has huge value in the market because it will enable you to issue your tokens at some premium uh, to the melt value of the gold. Uh, and, and that's value to the business. And just like anything else, I mean, people say, oh, we can't trust third parties. Well, if you couldn't trust third parties, there would be no insurance industry, right? All insurance is based on the commitment of the third party. You buy life insurance, and when you die, your beneficiaries get money. Where's the money coming from? The insurance company. You trust that the insurance company is going to make good on its obligation. It could go bankrupt, and, and, and your heirs will get nothing, right? But, mm. but why do people buy insurance? Well, because these insurance companies build up reputations, and they have third parties that will validate. They get audited. You know, so if you think that we can't have a monetary system based on gold and then digitized or tokenized, you just don't believe in capitalism. You just don't believe that the free market works <laughs> because it does work. It works in everything. Now, the only problem that I see to a world in which gold is remonetized and the private sector issues currency legitimate currency, not fiat currency, our governments are going to hate it. <laughs> so <laughs> governments will try to attack it with regulation. Well, they're already attacking Bitcoin with regulations right now anyway. They, you know, mm. so, but, so, but all governments won't be able to attack it, and they won't be able to eradicate it, right? Because they're not all uh, you know, going to see it as a big threat. I mean, it will be a threat to the United States because it will be a threat to the dollar's role as a reserve currency, although the dollar may lose that role even without gold, you know, just because it self-destructs on its own. But yes, I mean, there's going to be rules and regulations that will complicate it. Just like right now, they're, they're trying to put more rules and regulations on Airbnb because it competes with hotels, <laughs> on Uber or Lyft because they compete with taxi cabs. You know, they, they put regulations on Federal Express because it competed with the post office. The government doesn't like competition, and so it tries to encumber its competition with expensive rules and regulations. So the mm. same thing is probably going to happen uh, 
with, uh, you know, gold-backed cryptos. But that will simply give advantages to those gold-backed cryptos uh, that are originated outside the United States or outside of any country uh, that is uh, imposing unnecessary regulations. It'll give a competitive advantage to the issuers uh, that are not subject to subjected to those regulations. But of course, everybody will be subjected to the free market regulations, which are the most effective means of regulating any enterprise. So, Peter, before I hand my last question over to Cyrus, um, you know, I've been asked this many times throughout the week. A lot of people are getting really nervous with these markets. I mean, seeing banks uh, disintegrate within 24 hours, Credit Suisse never would have thought that it uh, went to the wall so fast. I mean, shareholders have got to be extremely careful in the next few weeks, especially if they're owning the financials. Uh, you know, how does a, a company like Credit Suisse go to pretty much zero overnight? But yeah, well, if you, know, you could, not, it, if, if you could, sorry, before you answer that, if you could also share your prediction on what do you think is going to happen here in the next maybe one year, two years in these markets, and how do we get out of this mess? Back over to yeah. you, Peter. Sorry. Yeah, well, first of all, I mean, what happened to Credit Suisse didn't just come out of the blue. I mean, look at a chart of its stock price, right? I mean, this, the price of that stock, I think before the 08 financial crisis, the stock was maybe $60, $70 a share. And before it went bankrupt, it was two bucks, right? I mean, mm. and so it had been steadily declining. And so then, you know, with the bankruptcy, it went to 85 cents. Now, it should have gone to zero. I mean, I don't know how the politicians uh, were able to circumvent, you know, the rule of law in Switzerland to put the equity holders ahead of secured, you know, creditors, bondholders. Uh, but it just didn't come out of left field. You know, it reminds me of I, the quote, I forget who said it, you know, how did you go bankrupt? Well, slowly at first, then all of a sudden. Right? <laughs> and, um, and yeah, and so that's what's going on. And, and so a lot of other banks have been going bankrupt slowly over the years. And uh, now they're going to, uh, you know, finish the process very quickly. Um, but the governments are already trying to backstop that. I mean, that's what happened. I think had, let's say, the Fed and the U.S. Treasury not backstopped those deposits, those uninsured deposits at, um, you know, Silicon Valley Bank or Signature Bank, that we may have had bigger failures immediately. Mm. But I think the moral hazard of those backstops is actually going to produce even more failures eventually. And not I'm not talking about far in the future, maybe in the next several months, <laughs> because what they have, uh, you know, inadvertently done, right? And again, you know, it doesn't matter if this wasn't their intention. This is the, the consequence. It was the un unintended consequence of their actions. But what they have done, they didn't want to say that all bank accounts are now insured to an unlimited amount. Because they knew that that would be bad because, you know, that's a moral hazard in and of itself. Plus, that would expose the U.S. government to even greater, you know, uh, unfunded liability, contingency liabilities for, you know, trillions and trillions of dollars of deposits that are not currently insured that all of a sudden would have to be insured. Um, but what happened is that by limiting the insurance to these few banks, by saying, look, there is no explicit guarantee that if you've got a five, $10 million account at 
a bank that is not systemically important, that we're going to cover you, right? That it's a case-by-case situation. We have to evaluate the bank and evaluate the impact on the overall economy of allowing, you know, uh, the uninsured depositors to lose money. And then we're going to decide if we want to extend this special privilege (laughs) to your bank. And so the message that that is sending to depositors around the country is, I don't want to take that chance. You know, I, I don't want to leave it up to a coin toss. I got my money in a small bank. All these banks are loaded up with bad mortgages and long-term treasuries. There's a chance that my bank could fail. Why should I take that chance? What's the purpose? What's the upside for me? Nothing. I mean, what are they giving me? Right? So people are going to take their money out of these smaller banks, local community banks, and they're going to, they're going to deposit into these massive banks or some of the banks perversely like Signature Bank or uh, Silicon Valley Bank, which are still in business. They're just being run by the government now. But, you know, they, they, they can put their money there because they know that the government has already said, look, you'll never lose any money in these banks. Right? We've right. already, like, ast- extended it. So they, they have basically created a run on, on, on smaller banks. And the worst part about it is some of these small banks or a lot of these small banks may, in fact, be solvent. But people are going to yank their money out of these solvent banks, rendering them insolvent because none of these banks in a fractional reserve system can really handle a run, which is what the government has potentially created here by saying these banks are protected and these who the hell knows. Right. So why take a chance with your life savings? Right. Now, the people who have one hundred thousand in the bank, two hundred thousand. OK, they don't care. Right. Because, it's you know, the government's covering it. And that's that's also a moral hazard. And it's created a big problem. But the larger depositors, and those are probably the deposits where these banks make money. A lot of these banks probably lose money on these small accounts, right? They, they probably, you know, they're subsidized by these bigger accounts. But the bigger accounts yank their money out of these small banks. Uh, now you have another banking crisis, which is why I think that sometime soon the government is going to make another mistake to try to offset the impact of its prior mistake. And they are going to announce that for some temporary period of time i mean they're not going to say it's permanent but for the foreseeable future you know whatever they're going to have to say that all deposits are insured up to 100 percent. but that's because that's the only way they can stop the run on the small banks right and 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 kind of level the playing field between the too big to fail systemically important banks and everybody else because the only way these small banks would be able to stay in business if you know, you take on much greater risk when you put your money there would be to pay much higher rates. They would have to say, look, I know, you know, if we fail, you can lose all your money. And so we're going to pay you double or triple what these big banks are paying. And we're going to pay you for taking on this risk. Well, they can't afford to do that. They, they you know, they, they, you know, they, that would render them uncompetitive. They, they, you know, they, they, they would go out of business. So the government has set the stage for another mistake. Uh, to avoid this bigger crisis. But, you know, the fact that they're going to have to do this, this shows you how sick the banking Mm. industry is. The government assured us after 2008 that their response, all the new regulations, would make sure that what happened in 2008 would never happen again. Well, I said that wasn't true, that the government, through its new regulations, not only guaranteed that it would happen again, but that it would be worse. And it is happening again. And it is going to be worse. You know, the government caused the 2008 financial crisis 
and they've caused the 2023 financial crisis for the same reason. It's the same foolish policies that created both. And in fact, really, what this is in 2023 is just a continuation of 2008. We just had a long intermission, right, between the opening act and, you know, the, the curtain call. You know, but we're just concluding the, the crisis that was interrupted by bad monetary and fiscal policy. I completely agree. I'm going to pass this over to Cyrus. Cyrus, before I pass it over, the best comment I heard this evening, has Peter Schiff ever been right? <laughs> well, that one, people, that one, I'm going to frame that. I love the people. The people who say that don't have any idea what I've been saying. You know, I mean, they they know that yeah. I've been calling for you know, like a dollar collapse, runaway inflation, and all they say is, well, we haven't had that, right? We we haven't had the dollar crash. Uh, we haven't had runaway inflation. Uh, he's been calling for five thousand dollar gold, or and look, you know, gold is two thousand. So you know, he's wrong. And yeah, some of the things that I have forecast would be the consequence of a lot of other forecasts that I've made haven't happened. Mm-hmm. But if you look at the entire scheme of my forecasts and the things that I have been writing about and speaking about and warning about for more than a decade, and look at how much has come true, how many things mm-hmm. that I said would happen have in fact happened for, for the precise reasons that I said they would happen and have played out the way I forecast they would. And then if you look at all of the people in the mainstream who supposedly have credibility, who got Mm. none of this right, in fact, who specifically said that none of this stuff that happened and it is happening could even possibly happen. I mean, those are the broken clocks, the ones that have been constantly saying everything is great. Now, just because the, the, the worst part of what I've been forecasting, the ultimate consequence hasn't happened. You can't discredit everything else that I've said. And if you want to wait for the dollar to be completely worthless and gold to be tens of thousands of dollars an ounce and everything to implode to say, okay, yeah, I guess you were right. Well, what good is that? Because you're broke. You have it. You have to recognize <laughs> that, gee, 90 whatever percent of what this guy has said has happened, right? Maybe he knows what he's talking about. And if he got the other 90% right, maybe the other 10% is going to happen too. The guys that were wrong 90% of the time, why should the last 10%, why should they be right about that? So I think it's smart people who can really do their own research and, 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 and see what I've been yeah. talking about and you know read it. They're going to recognize that, you know what, this shift guy, he's right. You know? I and agree, not, Peter. And, it, it's, and, not and, because, and, it's not because I'm so smart. I'm not saying that I'm some kind of genius. It's just that everybody else is so dumb or they have a vested interest in lying, one or the other. But I agree. And that, the truth and- I know. And, and, and that's why at the start of the show, we played that uh, two minute clip about your predictions, 2006, 2007, 2008. And that is exactly why we brought you on this panel tonight was to try to at least give these people, uh, send them some alarm bells on what's going on. And when somebody said to me, man, you know, this economy is going to get wrecked. It's going to be terrible. I said, go back, look at 2006, 2007, 2008. Google Peter Schiff was right. And they said, get him on the show. I said, and you we'll know try. <laughs> you know, I was warning about stuff in 2002, 2003. I just just wasn't on TV back then. But I, yeah. I pointed out as soon as the Fed went to one percent, I was like, "Look, this is this is bad. This is what yeah. it's going to do." And then as the bubble got bigger and bigger, you know, my uh, uh, you know alarms were louder. But then I eventually 
got invited on to like CNBC. I didn't start until 2005, but the, the producers had been reading my stuff on the internet for a while before they invited me on to discuss my perspective. And this is when they were a lot more honest about having the other side on. I mean, because once all my predictions came true, they kind of banished me from their air. You know, they didn't want me coming on anymore. And they just kind of said, well, you're, he's just gloom and doom. Well, okay, well, why did you have me on in 05, 06, 07 then? I mean, it was, you know, but because back then it was easy for them to make fun of me. It wasn't so easy after everything they made mm. fun of actually happened, you know. Uh, uh, but, um, yeah, so the point is you can see these things coming long in advance. But it didn't take me until 2006 to, to, to know the error that the Fed was creating. And that's why when they went to QE and 0% rates in 2009, I immediately began warning about the negative consequences back then. Right when they they said, oh, QE, is, it's just a one time thing. I said, no, I said, you know, there's going to be more QEs than Rocky movies. And now yeah. on QE five. Right. I mean, you know, For sure. um, I said it was a monetary roach motel. They could check in, but they couldn't check out. I said the balance sheet would never shrink when when Bernanke, when they when he first went to Congress explaining uh, why he wasn't monetizing the debt. He said, well, we're not going to keep these bonds on our balance sheet. We're going to sell them. It's temporary. I said he was lying. Here we are. You know what? Twelve years later, the balance sheet—they're still there. They've been rolling these bonds over for a dozen years. I mean, the, the balance sheet is 8.7 trillion. You know, <laughs> so you know that I saw this coming from a mile away. The problem is, I saw it so early that a lot of people think I'm wrong because I've been warning for so long. But I've been warning about an event that I couldn't possibly know the exact time that that, that it would happen. But obviously, you know, when they go back in 100 years and they write the history books, it's not going to matter, you know, that I was 10 years early or whatever. I mean, it's, it's all in the same time period. Like, here's the people that were warning about the stuff that happened, right? This, you know, and it's, it's this generation of Americans, you know, or a couple of generations that are going to have to deal with the consequences. And uh, anybody who uh, heeded my warning and took action personally at least will diminish their own uh, financial suffering as a consequence because they, they, they won't own uh, dollars or treasuries. They'll have positions in gold and silver. They'll own companies in emerging markets, uh, good dividend-paying value stocks that will benefit uh, as these events trans transpire. So that's what people can do. And you, know, and you still have time if you're not currently a client of mine, anybody anywhere in the world can open up an account with my asset management company. You can't buy my mutual funds, but you can have an account with your Pacific Asset Management. We manage money for people all around the world. And my principles and my philosophy uh, are going to be what is driving the investment strategy. And if I'm right about everything, and I, I think I am right about this big picture stuff, then the portfolios that we manage will thrive uh, as the rest of my forecasts come true. Yeah. Yeah, Peter, thank you so much for coming on the show today. It's been a pleasure to spend some time with you. And I think it's, it's important too, because one of the, you know, as a, as America, as we're both Americans, I mean, we do have this unique uh, thing here in this country where we have this American exceptionalism. And I think that's why a lot of people, they don't want to say the truth, or maybe they're just ignorant or blind to it because it's like, well, we're America. We've got the best free market. We've got the best capitalism. We're the best banks. We're the best. We're the best. We're the best. So it's kind of, we're always just feeding our egos and just saying we're always the best where it's like, Hey, you know, let's take a step back and start looking at what's going on around in the world and, and you know, what's, what's going on. I mean, I think, 
uh, it's been a pleasure to listen to you. It's been very nice. I think you brought some really great insights here. And I know our, our guests and our uh, viewers have really enjoyed today's show. So that's all I have for today. I'm, I'm, I'm good. Thank you so much, Peter. I yeah. really appreciate it. I think that was a great ending. Uh, just really appreciate it. We hope to welcome you back to the show maybe in the future as these things continue to develop. I mean, this is obviously going to be a continuing story that we're going to see for many months and years to come. Uh, so thank you very much for your time. Thank you. All right. Thanks. Thanks, Peter. We're going to go to an outro, everybody. And thanks again, Peter. And uh, if you're watching on Peter Schiff's channel, don't forget to check us out, Cyrus Jansen and Alex at Reportify Media. You guys take care. Have yourself a great evening, and we'll talk to you guys soon. All right. Thank you. All right. Thanks, guys. Yeah. Thank, Thank you, you, Peter. Thanks, Peter. Yeah, I really appreciate it. One thing I awesome. Said that, you, know, you know, you wanted to end it, but, you know, at one time, America was successful. And we didn't have to brag about it. We just, it was, you know, it was just obvious. But we were successful because we were successful. We had less government than everybody else. And for that reason, the best and the brightest came here in search of freedom. They wanted to be left alone. They wanted to be free from government. And so you know, we had a population of rugged individuals who were not dependent on government who took care of themselves and respected the rights and property of others. And, you know, we, we succeeded like no nation in the history of the world. The problem is, 